Hello, everybody! Welcome to the Vertiguys Worldwide Global Internet Program delivered to you via the cyberwebs <laughs> everywhere across the seven continents and the seven seas. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. This is Vertiguys Show. And we're checking out the dark side of DC. This is what we're doing. We're going to recap and review some Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are checking out Preacher issues 25 and 26. Last we left Preacher, we had finished off a major story arc as Jesse rescued Cassidy from the grip of the grail. And Cassidy finished off an Italian guy. <laughs> Sorry, is that is that a pun? Well, he killed him, but he also he, also he killed him. him up. He killed him. He also ate him. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Well, uh, okay. So this is preacher issue number twenty-five. Cry blood, cry Aaron. Written by Garth Ennis with art by Steve Dillon, and a cover by Glenn Fabry. As will the next issue that we cover in a few minutes. Right. So the cover here. This is a bog monster. Kind of a scary hag rising up out of the bog. But it kind of looks like Grandma, too. Hmm. I think when I first read this, I thought that that was Grandma. Well, this bog monster has long, scraggly gray hair. And Grandma was basically bald, right? Yeah, that's true. But I didn't put that together until later. At the time that I got to this issue, my first reading through this series, I thought that this was going to be Grandma. But, anyways... Okay, so we open on a war-torn city, smoke rising from many buildings, and somebody is shouting, Cassidy! Get Cassidy! Yeah, it's worth noting here that we are not immediately given any kind of place or time stamp. Right. Those are things we'll have to find out in the coming pages. Somebody asks the shouter which one they want, and the answer is the one that can shoot straight. Right, come on. Sure they asked for you. I'm not letting you out of me sight. Come on! The competent Cassidy is dragging his brother through the hallway of a building. Yeah, and this brings us to the title page. And the image here is of a very young-looking Cassidy following behind a slightly older man with a clear resemblance to him. Right, yeah. The older Cassidy looks very resolved, very set jaw. The younger looks quite out of his depth, but is actually the one wearing a uniform. They arrive at the room where they've been summoned, and another soldier tells them about the sniper just in time to get killed himself. Oh, God! Younger Cassidy shouts. Billy returns fire and takes out the enemy sniper in one shot. Worth pointing out here that they're using Enfield rifles. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, on the next page we get their names. The older is Billy, and the younger is Pranzius. Pranchus. Pranchus? Pranchus. Thank you, because I, I would have gotten that wrong consistently for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Pranchus. Uh, okay. Yeah, we're, we're finally given Cassidy's first name, and it's a doozy. Now, as Billy goes off to take a piss, he overhears a conversation between two people, and one of them is Patrick Pierce. This is a real person. He's a poet and activist who was one of the leaders of the Easter Rising, which is what we're seeing now. Should we go ahead and spoil what happens in the Easter Rising, or do you think that's something we should talk about when it comes up later in the comic? I would rather discuss it as it goes along. 
Okay. Because these comic books are actually like a fairly, well, not not really a detailed telling of the Easter Rising. Really shows his work. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're about to hear Pierce's theory of the blood sacrifice, and then he talks about the infiltration in the next issue. So... Now, like other historical or celebrity figures in Preacher, Pierce's face is usually obscured either by turning away or being cast in shadow. Now, another man is talking to him and says, In case you haven't noticed, our men are dying out there. Pierce replies, They have to die. You might remember, that is what we all came here to do. Yeah, the other fellow says that basically they can't endure anymore. But Pierce suggests telling the men that the Germans have landed and are marching to their aid, lying to them to keep them fighting. Do you think they're all simple? The nearest Hun is in fucking Flanders. Pierce, you are completely missing the point. I should probably give him an Irish accent, but I don't want to exaggerate it, so I'm just going to read it. <laughs> well, he's, yeah, he's not written with a phonetic Irish accent. Yeah, it's, the way that Pranchus it's not and as Billy strong are. as the way that Cassidy speaks usually in the comic, apparently. The blood sacrifice I have spoken of again and again, that is us. Because of our glorious deaths... Easter week 1916 will live forever in the minds of the Irish people. It will be the beginning of the end for English tyranny. In the words of W.B. Yeats, who foresaw all of this, a terrible beauty is born. Now Billy, listening to this, is visibly disturbed. Okay, so the Easter Rising is an Irish rebellion in April 1916. The Irish Republicans struck in part because of World War I, believing the British government would be distracted by the war with Germany, and possibly that they'd also receive aid from Germany, as he refers to here. Right. And since Cassidy is the same age as the century, mate, he's only 16 in this, in this comic. Yeah, and, and that's going to be called out explicitly. We've been explicitly told that it's 1916. We're also going to be explicitly told that he's 16 years old, just in case we forgot that he's the same age as the century. <laughs> right. So with this, Billy completely changes his mind about serving here. Terrible beauty, me ours. Pranchus. Billy. Come on, we're going. Going where? Out of this bleeding death trap, that's where. Leave that stupid gun and come on. And on their way out, they are interrupted by a man who tells them to get back to their positions at once. Billy gives him a knee between the legs and says, <laughs> You can fuck off. And as they leave, Pruncius tries to apologize to Mr. Collins. This is Michael That was apparently Collins. Michael Collins himself. <laughs> right. So they get out onto the street. And then they run right into three English troops having coffee. Yeah, and before they can react, Billy draws his two guns and lights them all up. That was amazing, Billy. You got them all. Shut up, Pronchus. Ah, oh, but Billy, yeah, will you shut up? There's only one way out of the city. Troops everywhere from both sides. They dive into the Liffey. What's the Liffey? That is a river that runs through Dublin. Oh, okay. So he throws them into the river and they affect their escape from the occupied city. Right. Oh, I forgot to call out that Pronchus can't swim and he shouts that as they jump into the river, which is the Butch Cassidy moment. Reference to Butch Cassidy? Yeah, as they jump into the Liffey. So it seems like we cut to an hour or two later and Cassidy is pissed. That is Pronchus Cassidy. Right, the Cassidy we know. Yeah, he still basically thinks they should have stayed and died as Irishmen. Billy tells him, Years from now they can look back at this mess from a safe distance and start putting words like revolution and tyranny and glory in the history books. 
All I seen this week was fellas shooting off pop guns for a while and then getting their city shelled down around them. Crunches protests. Oh, Billy, do you not believe in anything? I believe Ma will kill me if I don't get you home in one piece. At this point, Billy reveals that he was never really a true believer. He just knew that Pranchus was and joined the war effort to keep an eye on him. Right, yeah. He says, they knew you were wanting to join the volunteers. They just didn't know you'd be so keen you'd lie about your age to do it. Jesus, why couldn't you just burst your spots and play with yourself like a normal 16-year-old? So Billy goes on to reveal that he has a certain amount of political awareness. Ah, it'd be nice to get rid of the English, but there's surely got to be a smarter way to do it than committing fucking suicide. And I'd want to know a wee bit more about who we're going to replace them with, too. He wonders how Patrick Pierce became the leader of the Irish Volunteers. He thought it was Yoan McNeil. You remember I showed you the Sunday paper there. McNeil saying no volunteers to take part in any parades or anything. But the next day, there we are, marching in and occupying the place. So, so what do you think happened? I don't know, but something fucking stinks. And to be honest with you, I think it's Patrick Pierce and his mates. But Billy goes on to tell him, Wasn't he great, wearing his important uniform and making his big speech, just crying out for his place in history? People like that are dangerous, Pranchus. They're getting killed. Yeah, as they walk on, Pranchus asks how he knew all this, and I like that Billy replies, I read everything I can get my hands on to start with. And he asks Pranchus if he doesn't care that Ma and Da love you. Aye, but they'd understand. Sure don't they want rid of the English, too. At this point, Billy reveals something that Pontius did not know about Ma and Da. Ma's a Protestant and Da's Catholic. Did you never wonder why you're called Pontius and I'm named after William of Orange? So, is Uncle John a proddy, too? Aye, Pontius, aye, he is. Here, do you mind that story he told us when him and his mates were building the Titanic, and every rivet they put in, they shouted, Fuck the Pope? Oh, Jesus, Billy. Do you think that's why it sang? Why, maybe. Or it could even have been that big fucking iceberg it hit. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I also like that Francis asks why a Catholic man would marry a Prati, uh, he says, and Billy replies, Oh, I don't know, now, do you think they might have been in love or something like that? <laughs> okay, so, hours later, right, still they're walking they, now after dark. Right, they've apparently been been walking all night, and it's their plan to continue walking all night. They're freezing cold from having jumped in the river, and after hours of walking, Pranchus wants a break, and they stop. He, he asks, will we be able to go home soon, Billy? Billy says that they'll take some time to let things settle down, hide out in Cork, and then come back. They're right. from Dublin. Right. They're planning to hide out for a month or two before they try to go home. It's worth noting. Good. I miss Ma and Da, you know? They miss you too, you silly wee idiot. But then Billy looks over and sees something. Pranchus has sat down by the side of a stream. And, and as Billy looks over, he sees that a hag has burst out from the stream and bitten Pranchus on the neck. Oh, Billy. Oh, Billy. And those are Cassidy's final words of his immortal life. Billy turns and quickly shoots the hag in the eye and it falls back into the water. And that was the 27th of April, 1916. That was the last time I saw my brother Billy. Cassidy is now narrating from the present day. He's standing on the top of the Empire State Building with Jesse Custer by his side. Yeah, Jesse suggests they can take a break or go somewhere else. Cassidy's still not in good shape. During the Masada arc, he was tortured uh, by being shot repeatedly with an Enfield rifle until at least one arm was blown completely off. 
Uh, I'll be all right. I like it up here. Uh, yeah, and, and he also adds, sure, at least I got my dick back, well. Yeah, they also make reference to the fact that Jesse is supposed to meet with Tulip tomorrow. Right. Uh, this now, is the meeting that he arranged with her in the note that he left when he ditched her. That's right. On the way to Masada, he left her in the hotel with a note saying, meet up in New York, if only so you can kick my ass, which is presumably what's going to happen when he meets her tomorrow. Well deserved. <laughs> He does not want to be reminded of it, however, and Cassidy gets back into his story. Right. Now, he never saw the thing that bit him again, so he never really found out who or what it was, though he imagines it's the same kind of thing he is now. Right. After that moment when Billy shot the bog vampire in the eye, Cassidy never saw either one of them ever again. In 1916, Francis awakens in the ditch, but when he tries to crawl out, he's burned by the sun. He says it took him several tries to realize that he could come out after dark. He's a slow learner, he tells Jesse. This reveals, incidentally, that Cassidy can survive underwater without breathing, which is something we didn't know about his powers and state. Well, we kind of knew it. I mean, you can infer that a vampire can do that. Yeah, I suppose. He's not like a vampire in many ways. I mean, he eats some shit. Well, I suppose that's true. He uh, goes on to tell Jesse that he had no idea what he was because they didn't have vampire movies yet. He Fright never... Night wasn't out on video, he <laughs> yes. says. Yeah, so he had never heard the lore. He only had his own experience to go on. It's interesting that he says Fright Night, in which the vampire is played by an Irishman. Oh, who's uh, the vampire in Fright Night? Colin Farrell in the remake version. Oh, that's true, yeah, yeah. I don't know who it was in the original version. That sounds like a problem for show notes. <laughs> it's a problem for future, Sean. <laughs> uh, and then we have a scene where he, he feels hungry and he's not sure what he wants, but he's he's pretty sure that he wants meat of some kind. And so he tackles a sheep. <laughs> These two guys catch him trying to catch a sheep to eat, poised behind the sheep with it in his grasp. <laughs> yeah, they get the wrong idea, although it's likely they would have shot him even if they had the right idea. I, I can explain, he stammers, and they shoot him with a shotgun. You think that's funny? You should have seen the look on his face when I got up and ran like fuck. Jesse is clearly laughing his ass off of this panel. It's a nice expression. Yeah, he's laughing so hard he's about to light his hair on fire with his cigarette. Um, but it didn't take long, even an Egypt like me, to realize I was going about things completely the wrong way. All right, so I couldn't go out during the day. Big deal. Neither the fellows who worked the night shift. Didn't mean I have to live me life like a stupid fucker that bit me. That much was obvious. But then one night sitting in a pub, he is recognized by an old friend of the family. Ireland was never that big a place to begin with, you know? And when it goes mental from time to time, it can get even smaller. So he realizes that if he stays in Ireland, it'll get back to his family that he's alive. And he can't bear to go back to them. He can't bear to reveal after they've had their hearts broken by his death that he's alive. Right, and he can't explain to them what he's become. And that was the thing, Jesse. It had to be dead. So he says he took the traditional way out for a young Irishman down on his luck. I left. Steerage, of course. He sails into New York in 1918 and looks up to see the most beautiful lady he's ever seen in his life. And there's a lovely rendition here of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, and I think he has made reference before in the first New York story arc of Preacher to the Statue of Liberty being beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think actually what he says at that time is that she's got a great arse. 
<laughs> yeah, I think they talked about that. I want to point out, too, that as we see him here on the deck of the ship sailing into New York, we see him for the first time with his iconic sunglasses. He has not worn them yet, but we will not see him without them again in this story arc. What's the fireworks for? Don't you know? It's the 4th of July, son. It's Independence Day. And somehow I just knew that everything was going to be alright. Also cool on this page that the fireworks are reflected in the lenses of Cassidy's sunglasses as he grins watching the fireworks. Now up to this point in the story, Jesse has only one question about what Cassidy has told him. What? Francis? It's, it's a perfectly respectable Gaelic name. Oh, Jesus, please don't tell anyone. I'm serious now. You've got to promise not to say a fucking word about this. Jesse is now laughing his ass off. It's not funny. If this gets out, I'm ruined. You can't betray me trust like this. Please, Jesse, nobody must know. I'll kill us, I'm telling you. I'll kill us both. <laughs> that brings us to issue number 26 of Preacher. To the streets of Manhattan, I wandered away. And the cover shows a gleeful Cassidy falling from the Empire State Building. Not a thing that occurs. <laughs> yeah, well, this is of thematic relevance, as we will see. So our title page shows the young Cassidy walking the streets of New York, as in the present day he continues telling his story atop the Empire State Building. Now, I want to point out here that in this issue, we're getting the title page on the first page of the issue... Issue before last, the title page was the last page of that issue. You mean... And Justice for All? Right. Yeah, this quickly establishes that we're still in the same story arc. Cassidy is telling Jesse that he can't understand, having grown up with TV, what it was like to see New York for the first time, and, and never have seen it in any form before. If someone did go there, it was for good. They weren't coming back to show you their holiday photos. He says... I was like a miserable sinner who just found out he got to go to heaven after all. And now Cassidy relates his fateful meeting with a man named Gus Dingle. Right. He's jobless and clueless and an illegal immigrant to boot, and he meets a mustached gent who takes his bag and agrees to walk him to a boarding house. Ah, Jesus, sure, if the Irish can't look out for each other, what hope is there for those less fortunate? Isn't it a wild place, but... Did you ever see anything like it in your life? No, never, Cassidy says, and he turns around to see no one there. Gus Dingle disappeared with his bag. Fucking Gus Dingle. <laughs> Brave new world, Jesse says. Aye, with just enough of the old to give it an edge. Depressed, Cassidy walks into a bar and holds forth in the present day on, on what he loves about bars. There's something about a bar... And I think it's that it's the only public place where you can close the door and leave the good, bad, or indifferent world outside. You catch your breath, start again, you buy yourself a drink, and you get as much company or privacy with it as you want. He asks the barman for a job, but there isn't one on offer. New in town? Aye. Yep. He hands him a free beer and says, you pay for the rest. A little civility, a little kindness in a cold old world. It's the most we can hope for, the best we can do. You think? I do. So Cassidy encounters some men arm wrestling in the pub, and he challenges one even though he has nothing to bet. Not wanting to give offense either, but I bet you $12 you can't do to me what you just did to that other fella. Ha! Well, tell us this. 
Have you even $12 to bet? No. No, I didn't think you had. So what's in it for me if I win, then? You won't. And I guess this guy is impressed by Cassidy's gall because he agrees. And, of course, Cassidy wins instantly. There's something special about you, isn't there, son? Mick McCann. Now, Cassidy almost gives his name as Pronchus, but he says, New country, new start, new life, cursed from birth by a stupid fucking name? Ditch it. And gives his name as Cassidy. So I don't think we ever need to hear that name again, do we? Right, right. So now, Mick and Cassidy are walking and talking and discussing his job skills, or lack thereof. Now, from his job skills, McCann knows he was in the Rebellion. I like here, Cassidy says one of the things he knows how to do is hit two shots out of five with a Mauser rifle. McCann goes on to reveal that he served in the British Army. Yeah, he uh, skipped out of the Inniskillings, which is to say the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. Right, an all-Irish regiment. He deserted after the 1917 Battle of Passchendaele, a battle in Flanders, Belgium, in which over 200,000 British troops died over the course of four months, but eventually did push back the Germans from the Western Front. Right, they were fighting the Germans in that battle, not the Irish revolutionaries. Right. This was an all-Irish regiment serving as a British unit. And Cassidy asks why McCann would join the British Army. I took the King's Shilling the day war broke out. It was a big adventure, you know? He tells that as things got worse, he stayed to look after his mates. Until he realized that he didn't recognize a single man left alive in the unit. Toodlepip, chaps, on my way to guard New York against the Kaiser. It was through Mick McCann I met the collection of scoundrels, wasters, and contrary fuckers I was to spend the next twenty or so years drinking with, mostly in McSorley's down on East 7th. It's still there, but it's not the bar it used to be. Yeah, he says that it's not the bar that it used to be, in part because they let women in, and he goes on to say that it's not women that made the difference, it's just that they attracted a younger crowd that changed the atmosphere of the bar. Right. So he starts talking about the guys that he was drinking with. So, there was Slugger O'Toole, who'd fight any man in the room so long as they didn't mind him sneaking up and blattering him around the head with a baseball bat. And Johnny McGurk, the biggest whoremonger I ever knew, who always had the clap. And Hogan and Malone, who I'm still convinced were up each other. And Mickey Coop, the champion of the downtrodden workers, who'd never done a hand's turn in his life, and whom a can used to take the piss out of something shocking. And Barney McGee and Bill Tracy, who were your classic bold young rebel material. So thank Jesus they got no nearer Ireland than the Staten Island Ferry. And yea, verily, the Aaron McSorley's was rendered thick with expatriate bullshit every fucking night. Now this is one of my favorite, like, little references in the series, is the fact that all the guys that he used to drink with at McSorley's are the crew of the Irish Rover from that song. From the Irish folk song, The Irish Rover. Right, yeah. Famously recorded by Cassidy's favorite band, The Pogues, mm -hmm. along with the Dubliners. There was Bobby McGee from the banks of the lake. There was Hogan from Chelsea Town. There was Johnny McGurk who was scarce of a war. And a man from Westmead come along. There was Slugger on town who was drunk as a rule. And fighting Bell Tracy from Dover. And your man, like my child from the banks of the bank, was a scum. Now, when we first read this, we had a conversation about this when I first read this issue. We both first thought that that, that connection meant that he was lying, that he was making up these characters. And that does not turn out to be what it is. 
No, I think it's just Garth Ennis throwing in a reference to that song for his own amusement. Cool. I feel like it's worth mentioning also that the favorite old bar is one of Garth Ennis's favorite subjects. One of the Preacher volumes has, if I'm not mistaken, an essay on his favorite old bar as its foreword. And there's also a major story arc in Hitman where the main characters have to protect their favorite bar. Now, as he's hanging out with his crew of expatriates, Cassidy is eating a steak that he describes as medium rare. Medium rare, me arse. I just heard it go moo, says Mick McCann. But nobody really dwells on that too much. And as they spat over McCann's political unorthodoxy, basically he makes fun of the guys who are pro-Irish Republic but never go do anything about it. Yeah, <laughs> and they say, you're going in the book, McCann, and on the day the revolution comes. <laughs> and he mutters to himself, a terrible beauty is born. Now, that's the same Yates line that Pierce quoted in the previous issue. That's right. So Cassidy sort of catches Jesse up on what had been happening in Irish politics in the, the few intervening years. Michael Collins was starting to rise in Irish politics. Collins was a major military and political leader during the, during the Irish Revolution and died in 22 in the uh, Irish Civil War, I believe. That's right. He talks about how the Irish Revolution started fighting the British and, and actually winning, and in response, the English sent in the Black and Tans. Yeah, who he describes as a pack of animals. Yeah, it, it seems to bother Cassidy uh, even now that these guys were bragging about their revolutionary fervor while staying out of it. Right, while staying safely an ocean away. Ah, uh, they were harmless. But he starts to rethink his own involvement in the Easter Rising. But I'd been starting to think about my own involvement in the whole thing, about what Billy had told me, that something stank. We'd maybe been used. Time was to prove Billy right. It eventually came out that a fast one had well and truly been pulled. You had the Irish volunteers under Owen McNeil, who wouldn't fight the British unless they moved against him. Then you had the Irish Republican Brotherhood, Patrick Pierce and Sean McDermott and so on, who wanted armed insurrection then and there. Hardliners, you know. The IRB was tiny and needed the volunteers' numbers. So what they did was, they showed McNeil a letter that said the authorities were going to try and disarm the volunteers. Fair enough, says McNeil, we'll hit them first. He then finds out the letter's a fake. He puts a notice in the paper to stop the volunteers mobilizing, but he's too late. He says the volunteers never had a chance against the British Empire, never had a hope, but they were never meant to. We were the sacrifice Pearson all wanted to inspire some future generation to success. We didn't know it at the time, but all we had to do was get killed. But even now, Cassidy grits his teeth in anger at this revelation. But me and me brother, we weren't a sacrifice, and we weren't fucking inspiration. We were flesh and blood. And what Cassidy took from that was never to be used again. Keep your head down and avoid great causes. And as Mick McCann put it, and if you do decide to die for something, well, Jesus, it better be fucking worth it. Yeah, somebody asks him, well, isn't Ireland worth it? And he says that as long as he can remember, he just wondered how long he had to stay there before he could get out. That's McCann, right? Yeah, yeah, McCann, not Cassidy. So one day, Cassidy finds McCann reading a book called Dracula. By Bram Stoker. Another Irishman, right? 
Yeah, the book had a lot of bollocks, Cassidy said, but it told him what he was. The essential truths were there. Sunlight and blood, obviously. And living forever. How old would you say I look? About 25 going on 90. So Cassidy does age a little, slowly. He's not locked at 16. But he's also apparently well used. Drugs and hard living have taken their toll. I saw the boys starting to look that wee bit older. I'd known them 20 years already. So what would it be like after 30? Or 50? They'd be old men. I'd be just the same. They'd be asking questions I couldn't possibly answer. And as well as that, you know, I didn't want to watch my friend get old. Cassidy decided to make a clean break, tell them he was going back to Ireland or something, and stop going to the pub. Won't see us again. God bless. Cheers. So in 1942, he walks to the bar, but he stands out in the cold for five hours, because I just could not go in. Yep, so he ends up giving him the Irish goodbye instead. He talks about how clearly he remembers that night, how freezing cold it was, and concludes, I can never say goodbye, Jesse. I, I want to point out, too, I like this sequence of panels, this silent sequence. Steve Dillon did a really good job here as all of the boys walk out of the bar, Cassidy watching from a distance, and then he turns and walks down the street alone. I don't think Steve Dillon was the artist on the boys. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's what you got? <laughs> Derek Roberts. <laughs> he continues with the story of his life, talking about his encounters with some famous people. Dylan Thomas, Brendan Behan, and Norman Mailer. Yeah, Dylan Thomas actually died in front of Cassidy as they were walking out of a bar. They have a plaque up to him on the wall, you know. Dylan Thomas died here. It was actually 12 steps out the front door, but who's counting? I could tell you about all sorts of things I got up to. Women and parties and getting in fights and generally overdoing it. And the odd wee bit of nasty business. But I'm trying to keep it short because, believe it or not, there's a point to all of this. Oh, I... One last wee drinking story. In 1975, Cassidy walks into McSorley's. Yeah, he said he was checking out a record store around the corner. And he decided... He got it into his head to go back in. He says the bar was completely different. The... The, the bar was the same, but the atmosphere had changed completely. But, believe it or not, McCann was still there. I told you there was something special about you. We talked for hours. About everything we'd been up to, and old times, and what had become of everyone. He didn't say why I barely aged today, and he didn't ask. Johnny McGurk's dick eventually fell off, by the way. <laughs> when they finally parted, McCann shouts one thing after Cassidy. Make the most of it, wah! And after that, I never heard from him again. He tells Jesse that he'd like to think that he did make the most of it. He's been all over America, and he doesn't think he's seen everything America has to offer yet, and, you know, he wants to spend a lot more years. But he always finds his way back to the Empire State Building. He reminds Jesse of a conversation they had the last time they visited. I was talking about having friends you could rely on. I made quite a wee speech, and then I fucked off and left you to go back to Texas on your own. Hey! Now, hold on. I want to say this. I want to tell you, I'm in this thing for the long haul, this search of yours. I'm going to stick by you until you've done what you've got to do. You see, I've lived nearly my whole life looking out for number one. I never did anything for anyone, and I never expected anything in return. But you saved my life, Jesse. They had me in that desperate old hole with that no-dick bastard good fella shooting holes in me, and I didn't know how much more I could have taken, mentally or physically. I mean, in theory, nothing can kill me but sunlight, but 
There was hundreds of the whores, all armed to the bleeding teeth, and that dick licker star was using me as a trap to get you to come to him, and you didn't give a fuck. You just walked in anyway, all on your own, and risked your life to save mine. And the last time anyone did a thing like that for me was me brother, and that was 80 years ago. Cassidy reminds Jesse of their last time here, how he was here the night they opened the building. Looked out that first night, and all I could see was America, stretching away in every direction. I got this mad idea, if I jumped off the Empire State Building, I could land anywhere in America I wanted, and a great adventure could begin. This city, she's as beautiful tonight as the first time I saw her. I love you, New York. I fucking love you. Well, amen to that. So, I love those two issues so much. That's a really fun little story. It's great to have backstory on Cassidy, and it's really entertaining that he's basically been the same Cassidy for a long time. Yeah, I think it serves a need in the story for a little bit more of an origin, a little bit more background on this character. But yeah. it also serves as a nice kind of breather. Yeah, definitely. Given the huge, like, intense gunfights and action movie stuff that we've just been through with the Masada story arc. It's not just his origin story as a vampire, too. It's his love affair with America and New York, and it's the source of his cynicism, which brings us to the character turn that he makes at the end of the second issue. You know, to this point in the story... With the exception of a couple of bright moments, Cassidy has been along for the ride because this looks fun. And this is the moment where he gets over his cynicism a little bit and commits. Right. And that commitment is going to be tested as the story goes on. And, you know, these characters are going to go through a lot more together. But, you know, for now, it's nice to have this, this issue that really... Like, without seeming overly sentimental, kind of shows us the depth of friendship between Cassidy and Jesse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as sort of male brotherhood and friendship is a major theme of the series, that's also what we get in Cassidy's flashback. There's, I mean, there's the relationship with his own brother, there's the relationship with his friends at McSorley's. We know that he's had many, many girlfriends over the last century, and we spend no time on that. Right. That's true. Which is in a way telling about the character, but these are the relationships that have shaped him, I guess. Yeah. I mean, he wants to talk about New York, and he wants to talk about his drinking stories, and he wants to talk about how he was made a vampire, though without using the word vampire. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I also think that this is like Garth Ennis as an Irish writer, mm -hmm. making a sort of statement of Irish identity. Yeah, and he definitely shows his work on the Irish revolutions, and he definitely expresses a bit of an opinion on them as well. Right. I hope I'm not presuming too much when I say that this really makes it seem like something he cares a great deal about. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. What did you think of the, the hag and the fact that she, you know, popped up for several panels, bit him, and then was done? I mean, so we talked about where, you know, like, where does his vampirism come from is the question being answered here. And the answer is as simple and non-committal as possible, in a way. Well, I like it because it's like a, it's a sort of random freak occurrence, mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's not some great conspiracy, you know? It's not like, oh, his father and mother, one of them was Catholic and one of them was Protestant and this 
angered the vampire high council or <laughs> you know some some massive thing it's it's just a completely abrupt moment of freak happenstance like happens in real life you know yeah yeah but also you know he talks about how the bog vampire like literally it spends its time living at the bottom of a river and just jumps out at people when it wants a bite to eat and that's no kind of life at all. Yeah, there's a great line. I suppose, you know, based on what it did to me, I'd say it was the same kind of fucker I am now. I've no idea how long it's been there. And I'd have to say it was a bit fucking crap if the limit of its imagination was to live in a swamp and jump out on people. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, we also see in this story that Cassidy's had a very long and in many cases a very lonely life. He's kept a lot of friends, but he's also kept them at a distance for fear of basically committing to a relationship that he can lose. And, and so that's reinforced by not really ever meeting another vampire. In this story, he meets only one, and then for a few seconds. Yeah, that's true. As we will find out more, Cassidy is afraid of commitment, and he's afraid of goodbyes. He's a very emotionally weak character. But at least for a second here, we see him trying not to be. That's right. That's right. He is making a real effort here to overcome the weakness that he showed in his earlier relationships by promising to stick with Jesse. So, good preacher issue or best preacher issue? <laughs> it's really fucking good. <laughs> All right, well, now it's time for a segment that I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, in which I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. Ah! This week... Sean is going to be reading The Wake, number one, by Sean Murphy and Scott Snyder. All right. Okay. That was The Wake, number one. Written by Scott Snyder, art by Sean Murphy, colors by Matt Hollingsworth. Yeah, there's that Matt Hollingsworth again. Now, I want you guys to know, this is how much of a dork my co-host is. He <laughs> uh, actually takes notes on the comics as he's reading them. Notes that he's going to refer to, like, literally one minute later. <laughs> I feel like you're probably more likely to forget important stuff over one minute than over a long time. Oh, I guess that could be true. Depending on how important it is. <laughs> you are! We're not here to read about cognitive theory. Listen, so this was a comic book about, well, okay, it opens with a woman hang gliding around in New York, or well, a city, I shouldn't say it's New York. Mm -hmm. And and this there was a really interesting color scheme on this page that looked sort of more old Vertigo, like 80s style Vertigo, with the really bright pastels for relatively low-key environments. Right. But anyway, so she's like, she hang glides down and talks to her dolphin, and then she's like, oh no, we're too late, and the tidal wave destroys the city. Right, it's sort of an interesting-looking post-pre-disaster. Yeah, clearly a futuristic setting a little bit, although still very very gritty and realistic in the way that the buildings are depicted, whereas the technology they've got is somewhat futuristic. And so we pick up 200 years later with this woman, Lee Archer, who is being hired now to... Uh, she's a cytologist, and she's being hired to analyze a voice recording from some kind of undersea life, and she's taken to the secret base, and the secret base is very uh, is very cool. There's a submarine that takes them to a even more secret base underwater, 
Right. And and it turns out there's like a kind of a monster thing. The cover shows a mermaid in a straight jacket, which is a combination of words that I never thought I would have to say. <laughs> uh, but that is, in fact, what they find there. There's a quirky team of experts that have been brought in. Right. There's a whole, like, kind of cool sci-fi sea lab setup. Yeah. Yeah, I thought a lot of the details were very cool. I like the designer breathing gas to prevent the bends while allowing the submarine to descend at a greater speed than would have been thought possible. And the secret undersea oil pipelines. Yeah. There was some, some cool technology and just cool details in this one. Yeah, that was the, like, the sort of, like, get smart stuff that, uh, yeah. that I really liked about it. Or, like, 007 stuff, if you prefer. What else? I really liked the sound effect of the creature's voice, the way that it first appears when, what's his name, Caster? I don't recall. When he first hires Dr. Archer, he plays this sound for her to intrigue her, and it works, and it's something like, Wee! And then it appears later when she's in the facility, and she's like, oh, I know that sound, and she creeps up to it. Right, she's like, I'm telling you to fuck off, and he's like, I don't believe that you've never heard this sound before. And then we have a flashback to, okay, this is a first-person shot of, like, she's being swept off of something that she was floating on. And there's something else floating on it, which looks to me like the girl from the prologue. Right. Yeah, so it seems. So that's pretty weird. Definitely some kind of traumatic incident in the past. Yeah, and that's apparently the context in which she had heard this sound before. I couldn't yeah. tell if the girl was a skeleton at that time. A skeleton? I, I don't remember skeletons. Yeah, like if when she saw that girl, because we recognize like the hang gliding rig, the outfit she's wearing, and the, some of the technology she's got, but it looked like she might have been a skeleton. It was kind of hard to tell. You're sure she's not a skeleton? I didn't get that at all. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, here's the thing that I, that I have to talk about. I like the quirky team and a lot of the scientific... I shouldn't say scientific. I have no idea whether they did the research. I'm not the expert on this. Well, like sci-fi. Yeah, but I like the sci-fi details. The creature ends up looking a little more like the creature from the Black Lagoon than I am comfortable with. <laughs> You're calling plagiarism here? Not necessarily calling plagiarism. It's just when that's the reveal, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, oh, it's the creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, yeah. I know how this will progress. <laughs> In a way, the plot development is very boilerplate, but it was very deft. I liked the, I liked a lot of the dialogue in this issue. I liked the use of, you have to buy some HDMI cables as the subject that her son is talking to her about to establish that she has a son who's living with his dad and, right. and so forth. I really like that when she meets the author of the, the book on folklore, he has this line, she talks about recognizing him from his photo in the book, and he says, here, let me stand with half my face in shadow. Someone needs to blow my hair back, too. Right. That is, that is exactly how they do the photos for right. that's, and that's, scary books. That's glamour, is having a, <laughs> having a fan blowing on you while your picture is taken. So, were there any negatives? Other than the creature from the Black Lagoon thing? No, that's really my biggest... Oh, you know what? I have one other complaint, and I just have to put this out there. Mm -hmm. If her son has her name, then his name is Parker Archer. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's child abuse. <laughs> Actual child. She's the villain. <laughs> we saw her mistreating a kid. First she named him Parker Archer, 
Uh, and then she said she was going to buy some HDMI cables and forgot. <laughs> right. So, I still use HDMI cables 200 years in the future? That led me to believe, briefly, that we were looking in a situation where they were using a lot of retro tech, where, like, they didn't have their own technology anymore because of the apocalyptic events. But that's clearly not what's going on. Are you sure it was 200 years in the future and not 200 years in the past? Oh, shit. Well, we'll have to check this later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, that was an interesting one. I would like to see more of that. All right. So we've talked about Scott Snyder before, obviously. We read his series, American Vampire, mm -hmm. on an earlier edition of this segment. Mm -hmm. Sean Murphy, well, he's also writing Batman. I mean, Scott Snyder's writing Batman. He's writing Metal yeah. right now. And he wrote um, most of the New 52 Batman, right? Yeah, yeah, New 52 Batman is is, based, is also known as the Scott Snyder run okay. of Batman. But he hasn't really stopped because he's writing Metal and he's writing All-Star. Sean Murphy is writing Batman White Knight right now, so they're actually both Batman guys at okay. the moment. Batman White Knight is the, the book where, quite recently, old Harley Quinn showed up and beat up new Harley Quinn <laughs> and sort of told her off. Oh, I need clarification on this later. <laughs> so, like, uh, I could show you, but... <laughs> like, Harley Quinn, like, dressed like the animated series. Like Deanie's Harley Quinn showed up. And, yeah, and, like, beat up, like, Suicide Squad. Wow. Harley wow. Quinn. <laughs> okay, man. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty weird. White Knight is, like, a... It's like an Elseworlds or like an imaginary story kind of deal where Joker is recast as the good guy. Oh, this is the evil Batman good Joker story. Right. I've heard a little bit about this. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so I normally would ask at this point if you think you'll be checking out The Wake number two, but you already said you would. Yeah, I'm interested in this. So, all right. That's great. That's a, that's a success. So, uh, were you building up to a question about Scott Snyder? I, I, I don't know. What do you think of Scott Snyder? He seems all right. He seems like a good guy. I I am not familiar with his Batman pretty much at all. So, gotcha. He didn't write those Detective Comics issues that I read. No, that was James Tinney and Four. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, okay. So that was the Wake number one. Before that, we discussed Preacher issues twenty five and twenty six. In three weeks, we'll return to Preacher. But first, join us next week as Morpheus takes up his responsibilities as Lord of Hell and the dead return in Sandman. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter at vertiguys, on Facebook, facebook.com slash vertiguys, or on Gmail, vertiguys at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes, if you would be so good as to leave us a positive review or a five-star rating, that would really help new listeners find the show. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.